If you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 is where we are headed this morning. Uh, And as you're turning there, uh, I just want to ask you a really honest question. How many of you have spent a lot more time in sweatpants this year than usual? Anybody? Yeah, just just a little bit more than usual. I mean, with all of this working from home, with with stores being closed, uh, with restaurants being limited and, and, and different things like that, plans canceled, there just hasn't been much reason to get up and get dressed, right? You know, back in March, when quarantine first started, I tried to stay really disciplined. You know, I'd still get up in the morning, I'd take my shower, I'd get dressed even though I had nowhere to go. I was just staying at home most of the time. But I'll admit, as these days have dragged on, I have spent progressively more and more time in my pajamas. I mean, can can anyone relate to that, right? It's just been the the year of, of sweatpants. How we get ready each day says a lot about the day that we're expecting to have, right? I mean, putting on a pair of of worn-out pants and work boots means you're ready to get out, get a little messy, and get some work done, right? You know, taking a shower, putting on some cologne or perfume, well, that means you're you're expecting to head out to maybe a, a fancy dinner, some kind of formal event. Skipping the shower and staying with sweatpants, well, that means that you're living in the year of COVID, right? I mean, that's, that's the kind of day you're having. So we, we all understand. We hardly ever think of these little things, but occasionally these things take on some extra meaning, right? Uh, for example, I, I remember the very first time I ever preached at a church service. And, and I, I woke up that morning just like every morning, I sat down to eat breakfast, just like every morning, but, but as I sat down, I, I thought to myself, wait a second, what does a preacher eat for breakfast when he's about to preach? I didn't know what to do. It was, it was different. It was, you know, because it was this special experience that I was about to have. Uh, or, or another example, getting ready for Caitlin's and my wedding, right? I, I did take a shower that day. I... I did put on some cologne that day. You know, far from sweatpants, I put on a suit, right? Because I was getting ready for a particularly special day. And so today, we arrive at the third week of Advent. And it's the season of getting ready. It's the season of preparation. And and we read this last week in Isaiah 40. Remember, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Well, you know, and we also sing it in that song this time of year. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let every heart prepare him room. It's the season of preparation. And this week, in Isaiah 61, we're also going to see a little bit about preparation. It's about getting ready for a special day. Although we don't read about putting on cologne or perfume and a suit or a dress, but we do read about anointing oil in this passage. We do read about putting on a garland, 
We read about special robes and even jewelry. And so in this chapter, the prophet announces to a people who have more or less become accustomed to wearing sweatpants that it's time to get out your dress clothes because a special day is coming. So let's read this. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, and to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. But you shall be called priests of the Lord. You shall be named ministers of our God. You shall enjoy the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you shall glory. Because their shame was double and dishonor was proclaimed as their lot, therefore they shall possess a double portion. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants shall be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge that they are a people whom the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you proclaim good news to us and dress us in your righteousness. God, I pray that as we consider the words of this scripture, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we look through this passage, I want to do something similar to what we did last week. 
Okay, last week we were looking through Isaiah 40, and we took some time to consider some of the different contexts of Isaiah 40. Right? And I want to do the very same thing with this passage. Uh, there's, there's the original context that this passage comes from, was written in, spoken into, but then there's the context in, in which it, it appears throughout the New Testament. Uh, this, this passage has some echoes in the New Testament. And finally, I, I want to consider together a little bit, what, what does this mean as we read it today? What does it mean in our context? All right, so, so that's kind of what we're, we're going to do. So let's start with the original context of Isaiah. All right, last week, uh, if you remember, I, I mentioned that there is one focal event that shaped just about everything we read in the prophets. Do you remember what that was? Exile. Exile is this focal event that the prophets are always speaking about. They're, they're either uh, warning the people that exile is about to happen, uh, they're speaking to the people in the midst of exile, or they're, they're calling them out of it, right? Uh, exile is, is at the center of much of what the prophets speak about. Now, there are many places where you can read about exile, uh, in, in throughout Scripture, this, this exile that the people experience. But one of those places is at the end of Second Chronicles. In the very last chapter of Second Chronicles, it, it describes the people being carried off into exile. In chapter 36, it says, They burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all of its palaces with fire, and destroyed all of its precious vessels. And then the king who was invading took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. And so the city was invaded. Many of the people were killed. And the rest of them were taken away into captivity, where they were oppressed, heartbroken, and over time their spirits grew faint. In the midst of exile, it was very easy for the people to lose hope. I mean, exile was no quick thing for them. If you can think back to our dwelling passage from last year and Isaiah, do you remember what it said? that they would be there for 70 years, right? They, this means that a whole generation of people were carried away into exile, and they died there. Another generation was born in exile and had never experienced anything different. That was all that they knew. And so over time, the people easily forgot what it was to be at home. They forgot what it was to even have a home. They forgot what it was to worship God in his temple, right? And perhaps they even forgot God altogether or what it was like to have any measure of hope or joy. Like I said earlier, they were a people who had grown accustomed to life in sweatpants. They didn't know any other way to live. They had nothing else to get ready for, to get dressed for. 
They were accustomed to the ash heap of exile. This is where they lived. And so it's directly into this context that the prophet speaks. He says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to who? To the oppressed. He has sent me to bind up who? The brokenhearted. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to who? The captives. And release to who? The prisoners. Right? He is speaking to a people right in the middle of exile. This is their experience. People who are oppressed and brokenhearted. People who are captive and imprisoned. It's to this people who have forgotten what it is to worship God. People who have long since stopped washing their faces and getting dressed for the day, that he says, give them a garland instead of ashes. Give them the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Give them the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. See, the prophet is saying to them, guys, it's time to wake up. It's time to wash your face. It's time to get dressed. And so here's the garland to wear. Here's the oil to wash yourself with. Let's go. Let's get ready. But here's the deal, right? He's not just telling them to get all dressed with nowhere to go. They're getting ready for something. They're getting ready for something. If we keep reading the second half of verse 3, it says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. You see, though they had been uprooted, they're about to be planted. Though they had been brought off into exile, they are about to come back home. And then when they get home, what do they do? They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of of many generations, right? All those generations ago, the walls that were broken down, the palaces that were burned. It's time to rebuild. Put these things back together. You see, God does not only restore the people. He restores the people so they can rebuild. God does not only give them comfort. He gives them a calling. You have something to do. You have a place to be. You see, an exile with mourning and ashes, the people were dressed for a funeral, weren't they? But while they're dressed and ready for a funeral, God is preparing them for a wedding. I mean, look down to the very end of the passage, verses 10 and 11. It says, 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So you see, God is the tailor getting the people ready and dressed for the wedding. And God's also the florist. Keep reading in verse 11. As the earth brings forth its shoots, as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. And so he's got a, a suit made, a wedding dress prepared, and even a bouquet of flowers, right? He's preparing the people for a wedding. And so when the people expect a funeral, God says, you're not going to a funeral. You're going to a wedding. And then perhaps the, the most startling part of the whole passage is who we see at this wedding. You know, we just read at the very end of the chapter, the very end of verse 11, God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. All the nations. What are the nations doing at this wedding? I mean, isn't the whole point of getting out of exile to get away from the nations? They're the people who brought us into exile. They're the people who've been oppressing us this whole time. Well, what are they doing here at this wedding? I mean, building back ancient ruins means beating our enemies, right? I don't know. I mean, look, look back in, in, in verse 4. When they head back home to rebuild, who is then with them? In the very next verse, verse 5. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks. Foreigners shall till your land and dress your vines. You see, the end of exile doesn't mean being removed from your enemies. Rather, it means being reconciled with your enemies. This is what it means to leave exile. The good news proclaimed to the oppressed is actually good news for everyone. Because for Israel, it means that they will no longer be oppressed. But for the nations, it means they will no longer be oppressors. Instead, everyone will live as one people, reconciled to God and to one another. And this is great news because in this passage's original context, who are we? We're the strangers, right? We're the nations. We're the strangers who actually get to be a part of God's people. We are the foreigners who get to live in God's land. That's who we are. Righteousness and praise will spring up before all the nations.
So this is the original context of this passage. It is good news that's declared to a people in exile that, that a wonderful day of celebration is coming. It will be a day of redemption and restoration, also a day of reconciliation. And so what, what contexts does this passage enter into as it echoes on throughout the rest of Scripture, on into the New Testament? Well, the answer is that there's actually all kinds of contexts that this passage speaks into. You see, there, there are allusions to this passage in every single book of the New Testament. And it all comes down to one word. It all comes down to one word. In verse 1, the prophet speaks, this figure who is speaking says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has, what is it? Anointed me. The Hebrew word that's used here, is the word Massah, which is where we get the word Messiah. And then the Greek word for this is the word Christos, which is where we get the word Christ. You see, throughout the New Testament, every single book refers to Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. You see, Christ isn't a last name. When it says Jesus Christ, it's not like, oh, you know, that's, it's Jesus, well, which he is. Oh, Jesus Christ, right? You know, I, I'm Drew, which Drew? Drew Dixon, right? That's not what's happening. Christ is not a last name. It's a title. Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the anointed one. Anointed, just like the priests were of the temple, just like the kings were of Israel, and just like the prophet is anointed here. Every single book of the New Testament proclaims that Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the one who fulfills this passage. Jesus is the anointed one, and he truly is the one who fulfills everything we've just read isn't he? He is the one who comes proclaiming good news. He is the one who brings freedom to captives. He is the one who reconciles all the nations. And it's not just the various different New Testament letters that talk about Jesus as Christ. Jesus himself proclaimed this. In Luke chapter 4, there's this great Story where Jesus attends a synagogue worship service. And he's in charge of doing the reading. You know, just like Bill got up here and, and did the reading for us with the psalm earlier, Jesus got up and, and did the reading at, at their synagogue service. And so he gets up and he reads this passage from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And when he finishes reading the scroll, 
he sits down, looks around, and says to all the people there, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus says, guys, I am the anointed one in this passage. And as I'm reading it to you today, it's being fulfilled. I'm the one declaring this good news. This stuff is happening now, right? Jesus says, I I am the one. And truly, Jesus has fulfilled this. He came announcing the good news of the kingdom of God. He came to comfort those who mourn, saying, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He came not only binding up the brokenhearted, but also healing those who are broken in body. He came to set all people free. Not only the oppressed from their oppressors, but he even sets free the oppressors from their sin. And most gloriously of all, Jesus came to replace ashes with a garland as he turns death into resurrection. This is how he rebuilds former devastations. I mean, do you remember there's this moment where Jesus says, come and tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. The people who heard him had no idea what he was talking about, but the the gospel writer says he said this to talk about what would happen to him. That he would be torn down and three days later be rebuilt in the resurrection and rebuild it, he did. Remember that morning when the women come to the tomb. They were dressed for a funeral, but they were greeted with a celebration. He is risen. Are the words that they're met with. Jesus fulfills all of this as he transforms death into resurrection, replaces ashes with garland, mourning with gladness. This is who Jesus is. And so what does it mean for us to read this passage today as God's people now? Well, In some ways, we we can read this as those in desperate need of comfort. Those who, who just need to hear this good word, this good news. Because we're people who have also often become accustomed to our sweatpants. We often lose sight, lose hope, and, and don't even remember that there's any point in getting ready or dressed for anything. Because just like Isaiah here ends with an image of a wedding, well, so does the whole of Scripture. As we await that day when Christ will come back and we will be the bride adorned with dress and jewelry, ready for Jesus. 
This is what we wait for and long for. We have something to get ready for. And so, in another sense, we read this as those who have also been anointed. I love what C.S. Lewis says about what it means to be a Christian. It says, the whole point of a Christian life is to become a little Christ. Because Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. But as Christians, we too are anointed. We too are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we too are given a calling. He doesn't just comfort us, he calls us. And so I wonder, where are the devastated places that need to be rebuilt? Where are the places that we can move and bring hope and redemption? What are the ways that we can be little Christs in the world? as we seek his kingdom, as we proclaim this good news? Who are the people oppressed and broken that we can comfort, that we can console, and that we can call to join us in this mission? To make ready for the day when Christ will come and all will be made new. He comforts us, but he also calls us. He is the anointed one, but he has shared his anointing with us. This is what it means to be his people today. And so as we move toward the table together today, we're going to listen to another traditional song of, of Christmas time, of Advent, a song of longing for our Messiah to come, of waiting for Christ to return, to deliver us and bring us joy. Receive these words as we come to the table.